0: Hello, this is Bishop Michael Fisher of the Catholic Diocese of Buffalo. Perhaps you've been asked this question before. If you could have dinner with anyone in history, living or deceased, who would it be? Well, as part of the Diocese of Buffalo's 175th anniversary celebration, we thought it would be interesting to try something like that. And so through the abilities of technology and imagination, We've arranged to meet with some of the people whose work and faith helped shape the diocese and whose impacts are still seen and felt in the community today. We invite you now to sit back, relax, and enjoy this feast for your ears and your spirit. Welcome to Dinners with Our Founders. Here's your host of Dinners with Our Founders, Steve Cishan. Thank you, Your Excellency,
1: and welcome, everyone. Throughout the history of the Diocese of Buffalo, many holy people have emerged to become selfless but tireless champions of service, charity, mercy, and education. My latest guest passed away nearly a century ago, but his name still resonates through the community of Lackawanna, through much of western New York. He was known to many as the Padre of the Poor, and he provided a home, and more than that, hope, to hundreds of young people who would become known as Father Baker's Boys. Today, many believe he was literally a saint living among us. Let's welcome at this time, Father Nelson Baker. Hello, Father. Hello. So, Father, you were born in 1842 to a German father, Louis, and to an Irish mother, Caroline. Both were born in Europe, but traveled here with your grandparents. If you could pay homage to both of your parents, I'd order us dinner schnitzel alongside Colcannon.
2: Ah, a meat and potatoes person yourself. An interesting choice you've made here.
1: Mm, and they're tasting
2: surprisingly well together.
1: Thank you. I'm glad I chose well for you. Now, as I've mentioned, you were born in 1842, which was five years before the Roman Catholic Diocese of Buffalo was even established. There you were as a child, living at a time when the diocese, like you, was just starting to grow up. Yes, but in the first
2: years of my childhood, I was not a Catholic. My father was a Lutheran and upon my birth, I was baptized into the Lutheran faith. My mother, meanwhile, she was a devout Catholic. She enjoyed attending mass regularly and I enjoyed accompanying her to each mass. It influenced and shaped my own strong faith and when I was the age of 10, My mother re-baptized me, this time as a Catholic. As a boy, I was known for my gentle but strong disposition. I showed some talent in music, playing both guitar and piano, and I really loved playing this up-and-coming sport. Yes, I loved what they had come to call baseball. I was rather athletic, as I remember. We lived in the city of Buffalo, which was rapidly growing to become an important shipping and industrial hub. My father had previously worked as a mariner. He had retired from that line of work, but seeing the opportunities that Buffalo presented as a commercial port, he went into business, opening a grocery and general store. I was the second oldest of four sons, and upon my graduation from Central High School, I joined my father and our older brother Louis working in the store. The family lived behind the shop, so there was no trouble reporting to work each day. Business was good, and we were content in our lives, blessed by God, and we were grateful to him for all he had provided us. But then came the 1860s, and with it, war. Tensions had been mounting for many years among the northern and southern states over slavery and states' rights. Finally, several southern states, beginning with South Carolina, decided to part ways with the Union and form the Confederate States of America. Once hostility started, I would speak to local troops preparing to leave for duty. I encouraged them to serve with a sense of duty to the Union and not a sense of vengeance toward the Confederacy. I was never an active abolitionist, but I believed, I hoped, that one day we could end slavery without compromising the standing of our beloved country. While war raged in the South, it was business as usual here in Buffalo. However, in June 1863, General Robert E. Lee's Confederate forces had advanced as far north as Pennsylvania. In anticipation of Lee's push further north, U.S. Secretary of State Edwin Stanton requested that the New York State militia make 20,000 troops available. Remembering the sense of duty I had encouraged others to embrace, I enlisted with the militia's 74th Regiment on June 18, 1863. The following day, we were shipped out to Pennsylvania.
1: Did you see any combat?
2: Not heavy combat, but only a few odd skirmishes. My unit was sent to Mount Union to protect a local canal and the railroads. Those rail lines provided a critical connection between Harrisburg and Pittsburgh. We were later ordered to head further south toward Maryland Following the Battle of Gettysburg, many Confederate soldiers were retreating, but our task was to observe and report whether they might regroup. We had learned that General Lee's own army was crossing the Potomac River. On July 11th, we were relieved from our post. Our replacements brought in artillery and began firing on the Confederates in an effort to hold them back. The 74th Regiment, meanwhile, was reassigned. While we were no longer at risk of engaging Confederate forces, it was at our next stop where we faced more tension and violence. In July 1863, trouble arose in New York City. A military draft had taken effect, and many men did not take that well. Protests in New York turned violent. Buildings were smashed and sometimes set on fire. People assaulted other people. Sadly, many of the violent attacks were along racial lines. Many blacks living in New York, free from the captivity of slavery, were seen by some as a threat to take away much needed jobs. And tragically, many black people were targeted and attacked by rioters. A lot of people died, innocent victims, police officers, even many of the rioters themselves. We were in New York doing what we could do to protect people and property. The riots lasted five days. Once calm was restored, my comrades and I were able to return to Buffalo. And on August 3rd, 1863, we were mustered out of service. After I got back home, I returned to work in my father's store. It was good to feel a sense of normalcy again. One day... I had an encounter with an old friend, Joseph Meyer.
3: Nelson, my old friend, welcome home. It's great to see you again back in Buffalo, safe and healthy.
2: Joseph, it's great to see you too. Indeed, I am certainly glad to be back among the comforts of home, sleeping in my own bed instead of on a cot or even on the ground when we had to.
3: (laughs) And I'm sure the food is much better too.
2: (laughs) That certainly goes without saying.
3: But tell me, Nelson, now that you are home... What do you see yourself doing?
2: What do you mean?
3: I'm sure you've noticed more workers are being hired for factories, including here in Buffalo.
2: Indeed. We are in an ideal location to do business with cities east of here and west along the Great Lakes.
3: And there's great potential. I mean, do you really see yourself just working for your father's store for the rest of your life? Certainly
2: not, Joe. But with all due respect, I don't really have a plan just yet for what
3: to do. Well, I do. I am looking to open a feed and grain business. There's a space on Washington Street that's available, and it's the ideal place to set up. But I need the right help to make it succeed. Nelson, you are skilled. You are disciplined. You are exactly the person I think would make a great business partner. Please consider it. I think now is the right time for you to spread your wings and make a name for yourself.
2: And that is exactly what Joe Meyer and I did. Made names for ourselves with our new business, Meyer and Baker. The business actually did quite well. I had gained a reputation within Buffalo for my financial prowess, but also my sense of honesty and ethics. My Catholic faith was always there, but it developed and grew over the years. During my years working with Joe, I became a member of the St. Vincent de Paul Society. Through my charity work, I met Father Thomas Hines, who oversaw an orphanage and protectory for boys in Limestone Hill a locale that today is known as the city of Lackawanna. I'd provide supplies when needed. I'd also teach Sunday school classes. Soon after, as I got more involved, I sought to learn Latin and in my hope to obtain lessons, inquired with St. Michael's Church in Buffalo. That was when I heard the calls getting louder, the calls to serve God.
1: You were already establishing yourself as a good servant, assisting Father Hines and helping out the young boys and orphans living under his care.
2: Yes, and Father Hines had become a good friend. Still, there was one thing about his facility, St. John's Protectory, that had bothered me. I didn't like the bars in the windows. I thought it made the Protectory look more like a prison. Father Hines explained that he didn't like them either, but many of the boys who were sent to him were done so by the courts who considered the boys to be bad kids. I did not agree with their assertion. These were certainly neglected boys. They were mistreated boys. They had been led down wrong paths by sinister influences. Deep in their hearts, I believed that they were not bad boys." Those hearts needed to be nurtured. Only then would the boys themselves see the good within them.
1: So is that the tipping point in your decision to become a priest?
2: In the summer of 1868, I had the opportunity to travel for a two-week vacation with another friend of mine, a Mr. John Fitzgerald, with whom I was studying Latin. We traveled to New York City. One of our stops was at St. John's College in Fordham. Now it's known as Fordham University. We were on a five-day retreat there. We meditated on topics including purpose of life, original sin, and avoiding sin, the blessed sacrament, and vocation. I was especially focused on vocation. I had been thinking about it on again, off again, throughout the year, beginning on January 1st.
1: On the Solemnity of Mary, the Mother of God. A great time to renew one's focus on their faith.
2: Exactly. Little did I know then how much Mary would shape my vocation and my spirit. In the meantime, the calls to serve God were only becoming stronger, but I still needed to be sure. When I got back to Buffalo, I consulted with my good friend, Father Hines. He told me the best way to know if a priestly vocation was right for me was to enter the seminary. To do that, I needed to ask the bishop himself. So we met with Bishop Stephen Ryan, Buffalo's second bishop and the one in charge of the diocese at the time. He agreed I was a good
1: candidate
2: and accepted me.
1: So how was the transition?
2: Well, before I entered the seminary, I took one more opportunity to travel, empty my head of any business matters and worries, and think clearly about whether it was the right decision. So in late June 1869, I spent 18 days traveling around the Great Lakes. I visited churches, attended numerous masses, and prayed. I took in the Eucharist frequently, and my decision was made. I would answer God's call, enter the seminary, and become a Catholic
1: priest. How did it feel inside you, spiritually, to make that choice after all that prayer and pondering? That was actually the easy part. (laughs) Yeah, the hard part was yet to come, informing
2: those close to me. The first person I told was my mother. She was the one who continued to live in Catholic faith all those years, and she was the one who brought me into the faith. When I told her of my decision to become a priest, she wept with joy. She had prayed one of her sons would consider priesthood. My father and brothers, meanwhile, were more puzzled and apprehensive. They couldn't understand why someone like me with my business skills, savvy and success would cast that aside. Why wouldn't I marry and start a family and raise heirs to one day take over my business? They didn't agree with my decision, but they accepted it. And then I had to inform my longtime business partner, Joe Meyer.
3: You're going to what? You can't be serious. You don't mean it.
2: Yes, Joe. I really do mean it. I intend to enter the seminary. I've heard it in my heart, the call to vocation, and I must act upon it.
3: But you're 26 years old. You're too old to begin studying for the priesthood.
2: Lest we forget, I have already been studying Latin for some time
3: now. Sure, but then you have all those other subjects, like theology and whatnot.
2: I appreciate that this will not be easy but Bishop Ryan feels I can do this, and so too does my spirit. I want to do this. Do not worry, my dear friend, for I do not intend to just jeopardize this business. My brother, Ransom, is a capable worker and would be the ideal choice to take my place. You will continue to do just fine.
3: I will miss our partnership, my friend.
2: And so, on September 2nd, 1869, I began my vocational studies at Our Lady of the Angels Seminary on the campus that you now know today as Niagara University. I fit in remarkably well. I was much older than my classmates, as many as ten years older than some. Perhaps it was because of that that I seemed to naturally assume leadership roles. Academically, I excelled. However, in December 1871, I suffered a very serious setback. I contracted erysipelas, a terrible bacterial infection on much of my skin. Doctors in Niagara Falls and at the seminary were unable to stop it, so I spent several weeks at Buffalo Hospital, where I was cared for by the Sisters of Charity and treated by my family's doctor. I was able to return to the seminary in April, 1872, but needed more time to recover. For several more months, I needed the aid of crutches or a cane to walk. Through all this, I was able to continue my studies. In the spring of 1874, I was able to travel to Europe. The pilgrimage in which I traveled included a visit to Paris and the church known as Notre Dame de Victoires, It was there that I fully realized the Blessed Virgin Mary, Our Lady of Victory, as my patroness. From that point forward, I committed myself to promoting the frequent reception of the Eucharist, not just for myself, but for my peers. That would include all those placed under my care in the Our Lady of Victory institutions years later. I returned to the seminary and found myself on a fast track toward priesthood. How so? In December of 1875, just a few days before Christmas, I received minor orders from Bishop Ryan. They are lesser roles, yet they allowed me to begin ministry.
1: I understand Bishop Ryan also gave you tonsure?
2: (laughs) Yes, yes he did. In my day, shaving the tops of our heads was still practiced by the Catholic Church as a gesture of obedience and humility. Luckily, only a limited number of orders still do that, with permission of the Pope. I may have been gone from this earth for many years now, but I still remember how cold buffalo winters can get. I then was ordained about three months later. In March of 1876, I was summoned, along with three classmates, to meet with Bishop Ryan. Gentlemen, thank you for coming.
4: Do you know why I've called you to meet? There is an urgent need for priests here in the Diocese of Buffalo. Mr. Baker, Mr. Lasher, Mr. Long, Mr. Lee. You have all been exceptional students and strong in faith and devotion. While I in the seminary would certainly have preferred to celebrate your ordination along with your whole class, the need for priests compels me to accelerate your schedules. The four of you shall become priests this month.
2: On March 19, 1876, the feast day of St. Joseph, I became Father Nelson Baker. Such a fitting day as we were ordained inside St. Joseph's Cathedral. My family was there. My mother knelt and wept with joy as I gave her my first blessing. My father and brothers were also present. While they still did not entirely agree with my decision to pursue the priesthood, they respected my decision. They were also there for my first Mass," said three days later.
1: So now that you were officially a priest, tell us about your earliest assignments.
2: Well, I was most astonished by my first assignment. Bishop Ryan appointed me assistant superintendent of the institutions at Limestone Hill. I would be working and serving under my good friend, Father Hines.
1: That had to be a pleasant surprise.
2: It certainly was, at first. Bishop Bryan explained that my business background and my track record of success in that field made me the ideal candidate to help Father Hines. But once I settled in and got to work, I learned why they chose me. The financial situation there was dire. The institutions were in debt, $27,000 in total in 1876. By 1881, that debt soared to nearly $60,000.
1: Yikes, and that was by 1881 standards. Today, they'd be about $1.75 million or so. By
2: any year or standard, I feared the institutions were destined to fail. I felt overwhelmed and unable to make a difference, even with my business experience. I asked Bishop Ryan for a new assignment, and it was granted. I was reassigned to St. Mary's Parish in Corning. This was still a time when the Diocese of Buffalo extended that far east, you see. I stayed there for only one year, but left quite an impression on the community. At least three people suffering illnesses that I had interacted with were cured. These cases included typhoid fever, diphtheria, and a kidney ailment. Some have suggested that these were miracles. I leave that to higher powers to decide, but through my faith, through their faith, they were healed.
1: You said you stayed in Corning for only one year. What happened? In February 1882,
2: I was summoned back to Buffalo for a meeting with Bishop Ryan.
4: Father Baker, welcome and thank you. I trust your travel was not too difficult?
2: No, it was a bit chilly traveling from Corning to Buffalo, but the trip went smoothly, thank you. This tea on a cold day is most appreciated though. Again, thank you.
4: I will get right to the point. Father Hines has worked very hard to keep the institutions operating at Limestone Hill. But we agree that it's time to move him to a different parish
2: where the work will be
4: less stressful for him.
2: That is certainly fair. Even I observed him to be exhausted with worry many times, especially given the institutions mounting debts. We
4: also agree that you would be the ideal replacement. I know it's a big task, but we both have faith you are capable of handling it.
2: And so there I was, the pastor of St. Patrick's Church and superintendent of St. John's Protectory and St. Joseph's Orphan Asylum. While I entered my new role worried about the debt, I prayed and relied on all the enthusiasm I could muster to do what Bishop Ryan entrusted me to do. It wasn't long before I'd have to address the institution's debts. In fact... Just a few days into my assignment, I was visited by several businessmen and creditors to whom we owed large sums of money. There was no avoiding it, and so I welcomed them inside. Gentlemen, I know why you are here. What I do not know is what sort of discussions you may have had with Father Hines.
4: We do not know you either, Father. But understand, we need our money that is owed to us. We understood Father Heinz's situation, and were willing to be as lenient as we could be, but perhaps we let things go a little too long. We need our money, and we need it now.
2: I see. You are all in agreement with this? I'm afraid we are, Father.
4: Please understand, this is about business. We have many other interests to serve, and in order to do that, we must make sure that outstanding debts here are settled.
2: Wait just one moment. You look quite familiar, Father. I didn't get your name when we arrived. Baker. Father Nelson Baker. Aren't you the same Baker who used to be business partners with Joe Meyer? That feed and grain company on Washington Street? I am that man, yes. And I remember you. We did business together. Indeed we did. And I remember you now. I also remember you were a man of integrity and good word. Listen, if you can assure me you can begin repaying my debts in the reasonably near future, I'm willing to be patient just a little while longer. Thank you. That is very kind. And I will make good. What about the rest of you? Very well. Return tomorrow, and I will settle your accounts. But know this. Once we are settled, this will end any business the institutions do with your respective companies. Well, well,
4: well Father Baker, uh, perhaps that's a little extreme. I mean, we do enjoy working with
2: you. No, no. Business is built on mutual trust, but... If you cannot take me at my word that I will pay you back gradually as I can afford to, then I cannot necessarily trust you as long-term partners. Good day, gentlemen. I'll see you tomorrow. That afternoon, I went to the bank and withdrew all my savings from my own business years so that we could pay bills and save the children from going hungry. The following morning, when the creditors returned, a handful of them still wanted to be paid in full, while a few, like their counterpart, had a change of heart and decided to accept only a portion of what was owed and allow me more time to make good on their balances. That provided the institutions some temporary relief. I still needed to figure out how to pay off the remaining debts and still have a sum of money to care for the needs of those in my care. One night I knelt in prayer in St. Patrick's Church and in my prayers, I recalled my visit to Paris, to Our Lady of Victory. I recalled how those who seek her help are never ignored. I recalled the prayer, the memorari, which I would have recited in Latin, but in English it goes like this. Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, that never was it known that anyone who fled to your protection, implored your help or sought your intercession was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, I fly unto you, O Virgin of Virgins, my Mother. To you do I come, before you I stand, sinful and sorrowful. O Mother of the Word Incarnate, despise not my petitions, but in your mercy hear and answer me. Amen. It was after those prayers that I decided to place the institutions and my work under the patronage of Our Lady of Victory. It also gave me the idea to form an association of Our Lady of Victory.
1: You established the association in 1883, and you were something of a pioneer by initiating a direct mail solicitation campaign. It was certainly ahead of its time in the 1880s. Nowadays, people seeking donations have databases and address lists already available, but you had to start from scratch. How'd you
2: pull it off? I began by sending letters to postmasters, not just in Buffalo and New York State but all over the country. I wrote Postmasters asking them for contact information for local Catholic women who might be willing and financially able to provide support for our ongoing ministry with orphans and wayward boys.
1: And the Postmasters replied?
2: Many of them did, astonishingly. And once I obtained contact information for potential donors from these Postmasters, I was back at my desk. I would then write to each Catholic woman, one by one, explaining to them what the association was and how their membership would support our ministry. Membership was only 25 cents per year, and I further asked members to agree to a daily recitation of the litany of our Blessed Lady of Victory. I also encouraged them to pray the rosary and receive communion regularly. As I saw it, the more people sought the intercession of Our Lady of Victory, the better our chances of keeping the institutions and their ministries afloat. What did members get in return? I published a newsletter, The Appeal for Homeless and Destitute Children, which provided members updates on our progress. It also informed them that they would be remembered during seven novenas each year. Also at Masses, celebrated not just at St. Patrick Church, but also at a few Marian shrines around the world in France, Ireland, and Italy. And how was the response? Our Blessed Mother was certainly on our side. The response and enrollment of members allowed me to eventually pay off remaining debts. It also allowed me to expand. We constructed a new building. An expansion of St. John's Protectory. I was also able to build a chapel where I placed a statue of Our Lady of Victory, which was imported from France. Both new buildings were dedicated in June, 1889. I said mass for the Protectory's boys in the chapel every morning, and then I would spend a little time talking to them all. (laughs) There were even some days when I'd urge them to give three cheers for Our Lady and the boys would do so. They would also offer prayers for the souls of the brothers and sisters who served at the institutions but had passed on from this world. I would also celebrate a benediction for the boys every evening. (laughs) Sometimes they'd come carrying their baseball gloves and bats so that once benediction was finished, they could head right out to the playground and play ball.
1: Well, your mission was really beginning to take off it seems.
2: It was good that we were getting bigger, but there was the problem of energizing these buildings. The spiritual energy was certainly there, but we needed to provide light and heat. Once again, there was a question of figuring out how, financially, we could continue our ministry. As we expanded, the fuel bills piled up, and this would take far more than what association memberships could raise. I was thinking one night while sitting in my office. Natural gas had been introduced for commercial energy uses in Buffalo just a few years before. By 1890, pipelines were bringing natural gas into Buffalo from Canada. Among the uses was for lights along the Niagara River.
1: Were you able to take advantage of that?
2: Alas, no. I knew from the start that our institutions being served by a Canadian pipeline would be far too expensive. But it occurred to me... What if we could find our own natural gas? There were small pockets of it discovered underground, in and around Buffalo. What if, I wondered, there were pockets of gas under Limestone Hill, or even near our buildings? I thought about it some more. A local expert told all the Buffalo newspapers that the natural gas supply was limited, and even drilling to look for it would be an expensive venture in its own right. But just as I did many times before, I turned to Our Lady of Victory, asking her to guide me, asking her to intercede on my behalf to Our Lord and Father above. For several nights I prayed in the chapel, telling Our Lady of the need to find gas to heat the home and school which raised our children, her children. In time, my prayer was answered. So what happened? I learned that news of a generous benefactor had donated $5,000 to Bishop Ryan, and the bishop was welcome to use it in any way that he saw fit.
1: Really? No strings attached?
2: No conditions, catches, or caveats. $5,000 could pay for the drilling needed to find the natural gas. I was convinced this was how Our Lady was answering my prayers.
1: But were you able to convince Bishop Ryan?
2: (laughs) Yes, well, that took a little more work. After another full night of prayer in the protectory chapel, I traveled to Buffalo to visit the bishop and plead my case. I sat with the bishop, and our conversation began with some small talk, and when the moment was right, I spoke up about the need to address our heating bills. Bishop Ryan, as you know, we continue to serve our children at our institutions, but it becomes more and more expensive to heat those buildings. I need to find a way to reduce those bills."
4: Ah, let me guess. You too are aware of the generous gift I received lately. I understand your need to reduce your heating bills, but don't we all have that need? I'm afraid there's not much I can do to help your
2: situation. But perhaps, Bishop, I'm sure you have read of the natural gas wells that have been drilled in Buffalo and surrounding areas. I have. Well, I've been thinking.
4: Are you suggesting you wish to try drilling for natural gas? You can't be serious. I, too, have read the expert testimonials suggesting few sources of natural gas, and certainly none have been found in Limestone Hill. It would be folly to take on such a costly guessing game.
2: Bishop, I have pondered and prayed over this for many nights. I believe Our Lady of Victory is providing us a sign that there is gas in Limestone Hill and that we can find it. I admire your vision, but it's not practical. It's Our Lady's vision... I can feel it. Has she ever failed to help us before, Bishop?
1: Well, Father, I certainly
4: wouldn't want to go against Our Lady of Victory.
1: So were you able to get the money? No, not all
2: of it. Not then, anyway. At first, Bishop Bryan offered me $500, but I suggested that would certainly not be enough. We talked some more and settled on $2,000, In January 1891, the drilling project began. I brought in drillers from Pennsylvania to do the job. They arrived in front of the protectory, and the foreman asked me where to begin drilling. I explained that we would find out later that afternoon.
1: How did you figure out where to drill?
2: Well, to the astonishment of the drilling crew, I explained that I didn't have an engineer, but instead had an expert who really knew what she was doing—
1: They scratched their heads. And that expert, of course, was Our Lady of Victory.
2: Most certainly. And on the first day of the project at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, we set out to find that spot. It began with a procession that emerged from St. Patrick's Church. It was a sight to see. I was led by a large number of altar boys, followed by the Sisters of St. Joseph, then the Brothers of the Holy Infancy, and finally I followed at the rear. We were praying the rosary as we crossed the street, into a vacant lot where the drilling equipment had been assembled. We sang a hymn, and I walked to the end of the path. There I blessed the ground, prayed again to Our Lady of Victory, then dug a small hole in the ground in which I placed a small statue. I then told the drilling crew, this is where you are to drill, as close to the statue as possible, without touching the statue itself.
1: Boy, those drillers must have thought you'd gone mad.
2: (laughs) Well, I'm sure a few others were thinking so too. Weeks had passed, months had passed, The drillers continued their work, boring hundreds of feet into the ground. The foreman complained that they would have found natural gas by then, and the workers were complaining. I told them that they were being paid on time, so there was no reason really to complain. But alas, as work progressed with no gas to show for their efforts, some called this project Father Baker's
1: Folly. I know you're paying the workers on time, but that money only goes so far. That is
2: true. In time, we spent the $2,000 granted by Bishop Ryan. I went back to him, seeking more help, and over time, he ultimately gave me the remainder of that $5,000 gift from that generous benefactor. But I continued to pray, hold novenas, and reminded all who were in doubt that the work we were doing was Our Lady of Victory's care. She had never failed us before, and thus we were able to continue drilling on that spot. Finally, on August 22, 1891, we had a breakthrough. The evening before, the crew informed us that they had struck what they believed to be a gas deposit. We agreed to wait until the morning to drill further, so I spent the night praying in the protectory, thanking Our Lady for the good sign. That next morning, more than 1,100 feet into the ground, Our prayers were answered. The foreman sent a stream of water into the ground to confirm the presence of the gas, and the pressure of the gas shot the water right back up to the surface. There was one serious complication, though.
1: As I understand it, there was also an accident involved with this miracle.
2: Unfortunately, yes. Some of the crew tried to hold down the gas, thinking it was a limited amount, As they tried to hold it down, the pressure forced the water and gas to spray in several directions, including towards a nearby forge where the crew would sharpen their tools. The mixture made contact with the forge's fire, and... The flames shot dozens of feet into the air. Five men were hurt by the flames. Even three boys, who got a little too curious and got a little too close, suffered some burns. The crew was able to stop the flames and contain the gas supply. Bishop Ryan was notified of the discovery and the accident. He arrived to observe the damage and check on those who were burned in the explosion.
4: Father Baker, I'm glad the patients are all receiving good care by doctors. I'm told they're resting as comfortably as possible under the circumstances. In the meantime, I must commend you for your perseverance
2: And congratulate you on your discovery i appreciate your kind words bishop but it is not me that you should be praising it is our lady of victory i named the natural gas well victoria well and it provided enough gas to heat and illuminate our buildings as well as cook our meals
1: the story goes you even had enough to offer to other people
2: yes but at first there were unscrupulous people who tried to undermine us there was one newspaper report in that day that suggested I had been offered $60,000 to lease 200 acres of our property.
1: $60,000? How ironic that just years before, that amount was the debt that your institutions owed.
2: Yes, imagine how much different the path could have been had we had the gas well back then. But then it was also a precious test of my faith in Our Lady of Victory.
1: Did you ever wonder whether those offers you were getting for the well were maybe another intercession by Our Lady? let's put
2: it like this. My answer to these bidders was that the well was not for sale. That didn't stop others from trying to take advantage and even infringe on our precious resource. Some tried to drill not far from Victoria Well with the hope that they could tap directly into it and sell it to the Standard Oil Company, which laid a pipeline not too far away. Thankfully, they were unsuccessful we saved $3,000 per year on fuel expenses, and at least for a brief period of time, we provided up to 50 families some supply for their own homes.
1: Meanwhile, as you continued to take in wayward and orphan boys, your mission was about to expand as we headed into the 20th century.
2: Yes, while the latter decades of the 19th century were called the Gilded Age, for every fortune that was made, there was someone else who was downtrodden, poor, in desperate need of help and care. By 1901, we had more than 500 boys in our care, either in the protectory or in the orphanage. And I was about to realize a need to help yet more troubled people. One night I was looking through a newspaper. I read a story about the Erie Canal. A section of it was being dredged in order to make it deeper, you see. Workers on the scene made a grim and terrible discovery. They had found bodies or skeletal remains of several infants and toddlers. Investigators concluded that these poor victims were most likely drowned by young, unwed mothers who were disgracefully cast off from their homes, but unable to raise their child in poverty. It was a desperate choice, but... One they should not have made. The story compelled me to take on the cause and expand our mission to provide safe shelter and care, not only for babies, but unwed mothers. The result was the building and opening of the Our Lady of Victory Infant Home in 1908. It was available to anyone who needed it. If the young mother still decided she could not raise the child, She was able to carefully place the baby in a crib we placed near the door. Neither I nor my peers asked questions. We sometimes faced scrutiny and criticism from the sanctimonious members of the public who felt the woman needed to be punished for her moral discrepancy. But I saw no good in that. What mattered most was that all involved would ultimately be safe. Ah! It became one of my favorite places to visit among our institutions. Each night as I was making the rounds, wishing the boys good night, I'd also make sure to appear at the infant home. I even helped tuck in a few of those little ones. Every one of their faces was precious to me, and I made sure each little soul received a blessing before I left for the night. Sure enough, our needs only grew, and over the next several years, my next major project was the construction of what became a maternity hospital. It opened in 1919, but in time, to meet the greater public's needs, it became a 275-bed general hospital, Our Lady of Victory Hospital.
1: Your decades of business and people skills served you
2: well. Yes, but more importantly, My never-ending faith in Our Lady of Victory served me well. That faith was rewarded when we needed to build an expansion to the infant home, build the hospital, and rebuild the orphanage after a terrible fire destroyed the original building in 1916.
1: Once again, the members of the association came through for you, offering you donations which helped you pay off any outstanding costs for all those projects.
2: Thankfully, the association membership had also grown and that the members, too, saw the good we were providing through the patronage of Our Lady.
1: And that leads us up to what became your most ambitious project. Here you were, entering the 1920s at 79 years old, but still you had one more goal to accomplish.
2: It was a dream of mine to give Our Lady a victory, my longtime patroness, an appropriate shrine. My parish had grown considerably, so much so that the church was becoming too small for the congregation. Finally, in 1921, after all the other expansions and reconstructions that needed to be done, I hired architect Emil Ulrich and contractor Edward Jordan to design and plan this grand new church. Once again, there was the question of how to pay for it. I issued a public appeal to members of the association and by the thousands they responded with contributions. The shrine was constructed on the site of the old St. Patrick Church next to the protectory and the orphanage. In 1921, William Turner was Buffalo's bishop, and in August of that year it was he who helped lay the cornerstone. The first services were held there just before Christmas in 1925, with our first annual novena beginning on December 17th and ending December 25th. Construction of the shrine was finally completed in May 1926. What gave me great joy upon the completion of this project was that we were not in debt. That's what allowed the consecration to move ahead. Even Bishop Turner was quite surprised when I informed him it was ready. In July of that year, Pope Pius XI elevated the shrine to the dignity of a basilica. The ceremony making that official was held in October of that year.
1: That was also the same year you celebrated your golden jubilee of ordination, was it not?
2: It was. I was well into my 80s, but even as I aged, my enthusiasm still held strong. Over my many years of service to God, I'd sometimes join in a ball game or two with the boys. I'd always continue to help anyone who was in need and encourage them to seek the intercession of Mary. Our Lady of Victory had never failed me, and I assured them she would not fail them either. I was approaching my 90s, and what would be the final years of my life when my final, important mission unfolded? In October 1929, the prosperous, so-called Roaring Golden Twenties came to a crashing halt. The stock market crashed, to be specific. Thousands found themselves financially busted, destitute, and in many cases, homeless and hungry. Through the early 1930s, Our Lady of Victory's institutions opened their doors, and we served hundreds of thousands of meals to the poor and needy. Women, children, men who were unable to find work. And yes, the situation was that bad. As the Great Depression dragged on, we were serving up to 30,000 meals per month. We also provided shelter to those who needed it. Alas, by 1936, my health had sharply declined. I was 94 years old, and while I had overcome many other illnesses... Our Holy Father decides when time is up. And that year, my time had come. I was called home to the Lord on July 29th of that year.
1: It's estimated that hundreds of thousands of people came to visit your body as it lay in state. The newspapers used a lot of space on their pages to pay you tribute. The Buffalo Times, for one, suggested that you served 50 million meals through the history of your mission.
2: Well, I wasn't keeping account, but it was abundantly clear that there was great need
1: and I was determined to satisfy it as best I could within my resources. Now, many parents used to tell their misbehaving children, sometimes jokingly, but sometimes maybe not, that if they didn't straighten up and start behaving properly, they'd send them to you.
2: (laughs) Yes, sometimes they'd even have bags packed to drive that point home. I've heard that was a threat to many generations of children. But, you know, I also regret that. I sometimes wish parents wouldn't have said that. I never brought in children as a means to punish them. I brought them in so they could be loved. As I said back in 1929, we would teach boys to be true and genuine. We would teach boys to be pure in thought. We would teach boys to be self-reliant and self-helpful. We would teach boys to be unselfish, to care for the feelings and comforts of others. Ah, <sighs> So many years have passed that not many of my children are still around, I suppose.
1: Well, those with whom you directly interacted are gone. But the orphanage and institutions you built continued to serve local boys in need for many, many, many years after. In the summer of 2022, the Diocese of Buffalo visited one of them. His name is Gerald Janan. He was born the year after you passed away, but when he was admitted to your orphanage, he was in the care of people who knew you. This is Gerald's voice, recalling memories of life inside the orphanage and living with some who did know you in your lifetime.
5: Everything I heard about Father Baker, uh, about him, people borrowing money and then paying back Father Baker uh, was incredible. And then on Colton Avenue, I'd see the nurses walking down the street with ropes tied around all these little kids from the infant home, and they were taking a walk down Coton Avenue and then back to Father Baker's again. And uh, the girls would talk all about Father Baker and all the kids and how they're trying to get them placed into homes. Uh, No, he he did uh, did a wonderful thing. And when I go, and my friend told me, I gotta go back to the Basilica again, but, because he said what they did now is unbelievable. It's almost like a museum down there now. He said, "You, you would really love that. So I haven't done it yet. But I used to take my kids to Father Baker's and show them around and show, this is where I grew up. This is the orphanage where I, I lived. Well, I think if, if Father Baker didn't have that orphanage, uh, probably more abortions would have happened because there were no place for World War II was, was critical. That's that's what I kind of emphasize to my kids, you know, my grandkids that, you know, uh, praise God that we're Catholics and Christians and that we know those 63 million babies are gone, you know. And uh, and uh, I, I thank the good Lord every day. My daughters are so incredible. They're always here, they're always there to help me. And. Uh, God has blessed me, and blessed me with good friends from Father Baker, too. We remain close. The community hasn't forgotten you.
1: In fact, there are many who feel strongly that you should be canonized. It would be absolutely wonderful to have someone like you from Western New York be immortalized as a saint, especially in our lifetime.
2: (laughs) Well, I am flattered by your assessment. But in my life, I was merely a humble servant of our Lord, tending to his people in need. And I remain a humble servant of God who will never dare to state whether I'm worthy of such honor. Perhaps it's fairest to say, if it is meant to be, it will
1: be through the intercession
2: of Our Lady of Victory, just as it was with everything I accomplished in my life.
1: Well, that's fair enough. In the meantime, looks like we've both finished our meals. I've really enjoyed your company and your story. Perhaps you and I should have some coffee and dessert. That would be lovely. While we do that, let's go back to Bishop Mike for his personal reflection on Father Nelson Baker and his significant impact on the Diocese of Buffalo and the Western New York community.
0: Venerable Father Nelson Baker was known by many as the padre of the poor and the father of the fatherless. He was blessed with prosperity in his early life, but as he heard the call to serve God as a priest, he focused on those who were not born with the same privilege and comfort he previously enjoyed. The institutions and missions he led in his lifetime continue today and have been expanded. At what is now known as Our Lady of Victory Human Services, There are a wide range of programs offered to those who need it. These include residential services for people living with interpersonal, emotional, psychiatric, social, family or educational issues. Our Lady of Victory also provides community-based services, education, foster care, a group home program for young expectant mothers and their children and more. Nearly 150 years after Father Baker was first ordained, his legacy lives on, a legacy of helping those most in need of help, and in doing so, providing them hope. Let us also remember another valuable lesson from Father Baker's life. His faith in our Blessed Lady of Victory reminds us that those who seek her intercession do not go unaided. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Dinners with Our Founders. Thank you for listening, and God bless you. You've been
4: listening to Dinners with Our Founders, imagined one-on-one conversations spotlighting the
2: lives of some of those who shaped the Roman Catholic Diocese of Buffalo throughout its history. This program was conceived by Patrick Beakey and produced by the Department of Communications of the Catholic Diocese of Buffalo. Voice talents participating were, in order, Bishop Michael Fisher as himself, Steve Seashon as your host, Gregory Tobin as Father Nelson Baker, Mike Allaire as Joseph Meyer, David Kirsten as Bishop Stephen Ryan, Tom Lucia and John Pitts as the creditors, Special thanks to Gerald Janin and his family for their cooperation and participation. And special thanks as well to Jane Rose for her assistance with sound engineering. I'm Michael Mrosiak, the show's writer and producer. Thank you for joining us for Dinners with Our Founders.